All your base are belong to us. And welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I'm not encouraging the thing I love to do better, because mm-hmm. let me tell you, I fucking hate the Vampire Diaries. I'm, I'm a marketer, and uh, I'm, I think it's safe to say that I enjoyed this more than Missy. I think that everyone on Earth enjoyed this more than me. <laughs> I just did not care for it. I did not. There were parts I liked. I feel like with a key... A few key changes, you could have loved this show. I bet, here's my my true factual opinion on The Vampire Diaries. I bet the fan fiction scene for The Vampire Diaries slaps. <laughs> I bet there are people out there who are like, this can be done well, and they're, by God, they're doing it. Um, but I did not like the show, I would say, 90% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't good. It got better, which is so interesting to me because usually it's the opposite. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you when Elena leaves, it gets better because Elena sucks. This is not yeah. an Elena positive podcast. If you're here for that, I'm here to tell you that everywhere else on the internet is going to be a better place for you than this place. <laughs> uh, I really dislike Elena, and that's because I'm a misogynist. That's yeah. a joke. If you are coming to this podcast not having listened to us before, not a that joke. is a joke. It's not a joke. It is a joke. Not I'm a joke. not a misogynist, says every misogynist. <laughs> um, I like women. I'm not a misogynist. <laughs> I have a daughter. I don't have a daughter. <laughs> um, today we're talking about The Vampire Diaries season five through eight. Uh, we have been freed from having to do the originals and whatever the other one's called. What? Legends? Legacies. 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 Which would have sucked because Alaric is in it. Ugh. Um, I loved him so much in the beginning. And then he just got like so shitty. Like they it feels like they let him be his actual care like his actor. His actor. Yeah. He just oh god. Oh god. Oh, it's there all coming this- back. I finished this this outline a week ago and just like saying some of these words, it's coming back to me. And I'm just like, it's oh all coming back. It's yeah. Coming back. It's, it's like that, but bad. It's so weird. I know I'm getting ahead, but it's so weird. And I don't know if you, I don't think you talked about this in it, but that the whole situation with Alaric and, and Matt turning to like this weird, like almost conservative, not conservative, but like alt-right type of thing yeah. and not commenting on that as being like really bad was weird. I, I truly, there were some unfathomable decisions made in the making of this show. Um, but so yeah, suffice to say, I hated it. Um, if you didn't hate it, that's fine. I, I do not hate it. I don't care. Like you do you. I like my own personal brands of garbage. Like no, no shade. I liked it. It was um, it was really bad, but it was really good to like put on. This sounds weird, but like put on like right before I go to bed, watch a few episodes. Mm-hmm. It was really easy to just sit and watch. Yeah, I think if I cared about any character on the show, I might have appreciate it more you but like i like damon i do like damon uh, and, and, and that's caroline. because i'm a misogynist well you like caroline so you can't be misogynist that's right i like caroline so i can't be a misogynist um instead of focusing on like why we did or did not like the show i mean that's going to come up to there's a few things i wanted to talk about um 
kind of branching off of what we talked about in the first episode. And the first thing is is going to sound like kind of comparatively dull, I think. But I really I think in order to understand what the show's doing, you really have to understand like the mode in which it's operating. I want to talk about melodrama and soap opera as kind of modes in which The Vampire Diaries is operating. Now, I have for some reason been thinking about the 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 word mode a lot lately and I'm not sure that it is like the proper technical use but when I say this what I mean is like the sort of form that the story is taking independent of a genre because obviously uh the Vampire Diaries is like a supernatural romance show, right? But I think it can be a supernatural romance soap opera, which it doesn't have to be a soap opera, but in this case, I would argue that it is. And so when I say mode, I mean like how the story is constructed independent of like its genre pieces. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so obviously there's a lot to talk about in the Vampire Diaries and thankfully thankfully, we did one episode on the Vampire Diaries already and we've done two Twilight books now so we've pretty much covered every possible fucking thing about vampires. That's a joke. You can't cover everything about vampires. Um, but I do want... Well, if anyone has, we have. We've done a lot. I feel like out there there's a vampire exclusive podcast and they, oh, they've probably sure. done more than we have. Um, not as good. <laughs> that's my unbiased opinion uh, i never will listen to them <laughs> but i do want to kind of zoom out from the usual like but what does the feeding mean conversation now i say that in the most loving way because what does the feeding mean is absolutely a conversation we would have on this very podcast yeah. so that's not mocking anybody i think we else. have had that conversation yeah, uh, yeah yeah for sure um so i want to talk about the show's structure and its genre beyond like supernatural beyond romance and what those things are doing for the show because i think that actually reveals some really interesting things about why the show extremely did not work for me um which is not to say that these modes or elements are not working because clearly they were this is like a hugely popular hugely successful show so they were working for somebody they just weren't working for me um but rather that these modes or elements are just not a method of storytelling that i personally am particularly interested in um so the first thing i want to talk about is melodrama um Melodrama is something is a is an album uh, like a 2016 album by Lord. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Melodrama is where she sings all about Vampire Diaries. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but yeah. that's actually She's a huge Vampire, Vampire Diaries, Diaries fan fiction. All of her music is. Yeah, mm. <laughs> probably Billie Eilish too. Yeah, they're both all about Vampire Diaries. You can't um, tell me differently. Show me, show me proof it's not. Yeah. That's how proof works. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Thank you for coming to the podcast. Uh, melodrama is like a, a mode of fiction that I think is really understood because we often use the word melodramatic. Um, I mean, we're not using it inappropriately, but if we say somebody's being melodramatic, then we mean they are acting more um, more emotional than they should for the given context, Mellowly right? Hmm. Yeah. Words. Dramatic. <laughs> they're so dramatic, but they're mellow about it. I have no idea if that's that. That I, is like, not what that when means. When I think of melod- melodrama, like I know what it means, but like if I if you had to have me like explain it, yeah, I'd be like it's 
dramatic. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not wrong, but melodrama is like an exaggerated version of dramatic. So if somebody's acting dramatically, that's one thing. If somebody's acting melodramatically, they're acting even more dramatically than if they were just acting dramatically. Like I watched the beginning for some reason, just the beginning of Scream 2 the other day. And when Chita Pink and Smith dies, I feel like, the, I don't know if you remember or if you see that, but it's very melodrama, <laughs> dramatic. She like climbs say- on top of the theater and she goes, ah, ah. Oh. I would say that time that you ripped off all your wallpaper was melodramatic. <laughs> what about the time I threw myself on the floor because we were not going to the concert when I wanted to? That could be melodramatic. Um, but the, re- the reason that I bring up like the alternative uses of melodramatic is because melodrama, when you used in that context, has a negative connotation. When we're talking about it as a mode of fiction, um, it doesn't have to be negative. So saying that something is uh, saying that something is a melodrama does not mean that it is bad. That's not what I'm trying to argue. It's just a fact. It's, yeah. So so if you have that connotation for melodrama in your mind, kind of set it aside as we have this conversation. Then you're a misogynist. You, then you're a misogynist. <laughs> because my point here is not to dunk on the Vampire Diaries, even though I did not like it. It's to discuss what it's doing. I feel like if you listen to our podcast enough, you should know that our in- intent is never to dunk on something. And if it is, we'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be I, like, I think, we're about to dunk. I think we're usually pretty, pretty transparent about when we're dunking on something. Something. Yeah, um, but the, we like, don't dunk often, mostly because yeah. we're not tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um, so I would say that, I, like, I'm not sure that the Vampire Diaries technically counts as melodrama, but I would say that they have some things in common. So, like, here are just a list of things I pulled from Wikipedia that would constitute a melodrama: emphasis on emotional stakes and appeal. Check. Uh, use of sensationalized plot to like increase emotional investment. Seven checks. Uh, dialogue that is excessively sentimental. I mean, if they have their humanity turned on, check. <laughs> Stereotypical or flat characters. <laughs> <laughs> they typically focus on things like morality, family, love, and marriage, which are often challenged by an outsider. It'd be hard to say this isn't melodrama at this point. And they often use music to enhance the drama of what's going on. Like in a given horror. Scene. Yeah, like the pop, like they use a lot of pop music and they use, like, I, I was actually um, very annoyed as a person who wasn't enjoying this song to see how much of my music taste was on, sorry, who wasn't enjoying the show, um, to see how much of my music taste was in the show's soundtrack. And I was like, God damn it. Um, it's like the same thing happens with Twilight. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, it's like we should like these shows based off of the music. Yeah. Um, so. I've only I haven't watched a lot of melodrama. I the only time I know for certain I watched melodrama was in a film class that I took, um, which was a film noir class specifically. And one of the early films that we watched was was like intentionally a melodrama. So I don't know that much about melodrama, other than the single one that I watched in like the brief unit that I had on melodrama like fucking eight years ago. Um, but we can most certainly see some of these elements in the Vampire Diaries, right? The plots are fucking nonsense. Would you like to know what comes up when I search examples of melodrama in TV shows? Yes. This is Us, Six Feet Under, Les Mis, Pride and Prejudice, Shameless. God, that's not a TV show, Pride and Prejudice. Gone with the Wind. There was the miniseries, the oh, 90s one. Well, it has the it has the one with, what's her name on it? The newer oh, one. Oh, Keira Knightley. Um, a Star is Born, Carnival Row, Girl Interrupted, Love Actually, Dynasty, Nocturnal Animals, A Strand, Lion King. I don't think that many of these are cats. <laughs> cats. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What? These are like what Google what Google says. What? I don't think that's correct. Uh, 
so like the plots in the show are fucking nonsense, right? Like there are some of them that are that are like good and well developed, and then there are some that are fucking nonsense. One of the best examples of fucking nonsense plot that it, like it was clearly reverse engineered for the emotional investment is in season six when Caroline's mother dies from incurable by vampire blood cancer, which is previously brought people back from death like vampire blood is magic cure, shit yeah. it brings you back from everything not only does sheriff forbes die but she also has the fucking soupiest copaganda funeral i have ever seen in my life like we can talk about brooklyn 99 as copaganda but it does not hold a fucking candle to that scene where they have like all the police officers be like Sheriff Forbes signing off for the last time oh, or gosh. something like that. And then literally Ty is it Tyler and Matt are inspired to join the police force because of the funeral. Tyler doesn't make it. Tyler doesn't make it because he's not a fucking weirdo like Matt. Um But like honestly, it makes sense that Matt would become a police officer. Oh, it absolutely does. Um and that Tyler would fail at it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the plot doesn't make any fucking sense, but that's par for the course for the Vampire Diaries, right? So it did a really good job in giving Caroline a good storyline. <laughs> yeah, this the thing. The reason this sticks out to me is because it was clearly engineered because somebody wanted Caroline to turn her humanity off and ask, "Okay, how do we get there?" Now the thing is, this is how writing works. I'm not being shady at the Vampire Diaries writers' room for writing. Right. That's not what I'm arguing here. <laughs> of course, if they wanted Caroline to turn her humanity off, they had to ask, OK, how does she get to that point? What do we do to get there? Um, but instead of like giving Caroline any agency or just like letting her enjoy being bad for a while, we had a several episode long arc where so much dramatic shit happens. Like Caroline's mother gets cancer despite vampire blood curing literally everything up until this point after some experimentation. It turns out that vampire blood makes this particular cancer worse. Um, I looked up reasons why this was, and it was because cancer is attacking healthy, okay, healthy parts. I don't know all about cancer, and the and so all it does is help the cancer progress because it's attacking healthy things. Sure, that's that was sure. that was what I could find. I'm sure they put that much thought into. That's what I could find. Um, it turns out that vampire blood makes this particular condition worse. And then, of course, they don't know that until Caroline has already given her mother her blood. Caroline and Stefan kiss. And because of that, Caroline doesn't get to say goodbye to her. Like, it's wild. It's playing to the she viewers. never gets, like, real closure. It's so sad. Yeah. It's, it's playing to the viewers' emotions at an extreme level, in my opinion, at the expense of sense or, like, character development. Like, it's just... It's clearly just ticking boxes to that to where we can get Caroline to turn her humanity off. I hate it. And then how she gets it back because that was real. That was really good. Like when she finally gets it back, it was so it was so sad. And like the fact that she never got to read the letter, the fact that she destroyed the letter just killed me. Yeah, like there there are parts of it that are very good. It's just the orchestrating, like the pulling the strings for Max sentimentality is is what is bad to they me. had to really, or i guess not what is bad is what is melodrama they had to really like play it up so when they made her pregnant you wouldn't be like what the fuck listen <laughs> that making her pregnant thing was probably the worst thing the it show was has really done. and then trying to force an uh alaric caroline romance fuck off it was really this is me dunking on the show i was really surprised because when you told me that she had gotten pregnant i was really worried because i was like i have a i have a lot of 
baggage when it comes to like pregnancy and i was like am i gonna be able to watch this and literally had zero feelings watching it it was ridiculous (laughs) which is just absolutely wild because i'm very sensitive about that stuff and i was just like i literally have zero feelings right now i i'm very sensitive to it in the fact that anytime a character gets pregnant um especially if it's not by choice i get so angry oh so angry i get so angry um and this kind of thing continues on with questions about who's in a relationship with who. Like, why the fuck did this show put all Alaric and Caroline together? Did, why I think they be- called her Carol- Carolyn at one point. I'm sorry. I don't know how to read. Um, uh, I think it's what's interesting about Alaric is they brought him back and made him so dull. God. He was so good, like, being Damon's, like, friend. Right. And he comes back and he's barely his friend. Yeah. And it just it just made no sense to me. And, like, for that matter, Bonnie and Enzo... Most of their relationship takes place off screen, so we don't even see it grow. I do love them. Though. We just have to accept that they're together now. And I it, mean, I feel like it did enough for me. I, I, I'm just like, you just threw these two people together and then like later are telling me how they actually love each other. And I'm just like, I don't. Like Bonnie hates. I understand why Bonnie hates Damon specifically, but like Enzo is really fucked up too. <laughs> I don't I don't understand the the consistency of Bonnie being like, well, Enzo's fine. Well, I would imagine that part of it is because she did have all that time with Damon. So she was able to learn forgiveness for like someone like Damon. And that's precisely why she should have gotten with Damon. Listen, I have wanted her with Damon ever since the moment Bonnie said, I hate you. Mm -hmm. Like the moment I was like, oh enemies to i legitimately until we started this and i was looking at who ends up together because i'm like that i really thought damon and bonnie got together they have great chemistry we'll talk more about that later it's so frustrating because like they're the perfect enemies to lovers yeah um there's and like there's stuff about who's going to have like the picture perfect nuclear family future who's dying and jeopardizing that future even if it's not clearly melodrama i think it's fair to say that the show is melodramatic and again i'm not mm-hmm. using that in a, in a strictly negative sense i'm just describing the method in which the story is operating i would have a hard time saying it's not melodrama i, I just don't know if it fits the technical definition but like it is certainly melodramatic i think most people in the show are actually underreacting to what's going on in their lives like they'll just they'll just move on from shit like well it kind of feels like sometimes the devil is there sometimes like (laughs) i thought bonnie's was overreacting with damon just putting himself to sleep like i thought she was overreacting it it felt like she they were in love yeah and so like if they were in love and he did that which you know in my mind they were what if i put myself to sleep for the rest of your life i've i've been best friends with you for 18 years that's true. <laughs> or 19 years going on. They like literally, they spent three months together and they're just friends. You know, I, I would be mad too, but she was so beyond mad. Yeah. I thought that was a little extreme. I was like, are we sure they're not together? Are we 100% positive? Yeah. Um, like the devil is literally there and I feel like they're just quipping. Um, they almost murdered the whole town with hellfire. Most of the characters are mass murderers. Like, I feel like to some degree, there's some underreacting going on. Yeah. Um, and also just the entire ending. I laughed for probably like the last 20 minutes of the final episode. And then I had to make my husband watch it with it with me just to understand how fucking goofy it was. I liked I had heard the the sound bit on TikTok a bunch, but the ending with Elena, like, but over but beyond all else 
legendary. Whatever she says, <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. The ending is so bad. It's so bad. It I was, was like, so funny. I was like, are they dead right now? They're dead. What just happened? How did we just get through? My so favorite much. part is that Damon just disappears. <laughs> He's just not there anymore. It's so bad. Oh, my other favorite part of the finale is when when um when Elena asks Bonnie, how did you break the spell? And Bonnie's just like, like, I don't know. <laughs> one of the one of the things that I watched the video about the mystery of Bonnie. One of the things I had on there is when she at the end when she's like, I'm gonna go travel. If you look at her brochure, it just says Africa. <laughs> <laughs> the guy is like. Does, does the show not just know that Africa. are multiple countries in Africa? It's not just one oh, place. Oh my god! I just can't Africa. I can't with this fucking show. Um, I didn't catch that. And I was watching the video. I was like, it legit just says Africa. <laughs> so you know, maybe it's not cut and dried melodrama. You know, few things are right. It's an out of fashion method of storytelling. If you try to tell a straightforward melodrama today, then people are going to be like, the fuck is this? Um, But I also wonder whether it could fit within the realm of soap opera. And again, I don't mean this to be insulting, even if I didn't like the show. Soap operas, like we're talking about definition now. Soap operas are serials. Um, Nowadays, they're primarily shown on TV, but they did start in radio. Um, Dealing with stories about interconnected casts of people, generally with an emphasis on relationships, moral and emotional conflicts, family life, and so on. They were originally sponsored by soap companies, hence the name soap opera. Oh. Yeah. Um, They're heavily influenced by melodrama and are known for ensemble casts. One critic, Albert Moran, suggests that soap operas are most easily identified by cliffhanger endings and the promise that the story will be continued in the next episode. So, like, all teen shows yeah especially teen shows from this period the specific period which we'll get into a little Pretty bit little later liars. yeah so robert lloyd an la times columnist wrote that soap operas quote with soap operas quote you spend more time even with the minor characters the apparent villains grow less apparently villainous um and i think this really tracks with the vampire diaries in american soap operas in particular you're more likely to see a cast of attractive seductive glamorous and wealthy characters with an emphasis on romance of the harlequin variety meaning like very sentimental very intense and passionate um and like you know with some kind of wedge driven between the characters as well as convoluted plots with interconnected relationships that can get confusing and the reason I bring this up again is is not because I'm trying to say The Vampire Diaries is bad because of these things. It's bad for other reasons, <laughs> but because I think it sheds some light on what the show's goals are and why it develops the way that it does. I think when we see it as following the soap opera tradi- tradition, even if it's not meant to be a soap opera, a lot of the choices, including some of the really weird ca- uh, story choices, actually make more sense. So... In our last outline, Mary put a question uh, like, how are we supposed to forgive these awful, awful people? And we touched on some possible answers to that. Um, But I think that we can do we can go a little deeper in this one since we have more space um, to do so. So in our last episode, we talked about monsters as dark mirrors to humanity and the consequences of exaggerating emotions to an extreme degree. Um, But I think there's a compounding factor here. And that and that's the fact that this is a serialized TV series in the. I know serialized TV series sounds uh, like redundant, redundant, but I don't think I I don't just mean like it's a it's a TV series that's a series, but I also mean like the method of storytelling yeah. is end with a hook, wrap up the hook at the beginning of the next piece, go 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 go, new hook, and so on and so on and so on until you get canceled until you get canceled. Um, 
so it you know along with that it's in the tradition of melodrama and soap opera so if you want to keep upping the emotional ante things are going to escalate to unbelievable extremes right you can start with the premise of vampire love triangle but if you go on for eight seasons eventually you're going to end up with the devil the literal devil do you think that if the show leaned further into the absurdity of it and didn't try to like make sense of things that you would enjoy it more yes a hundred percent i feel like this is such a weird thing to say but i feel i really want you to watch for the liars because i want to feel i want to know if you would like it or not because i do feel the show eventually just leans into oh yes we have this uh you need to figure out this uh this clue and the clue is given to you by a bird using the phone what <laughs> does that really happen <laughs> That sounds a lot better than the family. girl, I think what it, I think what it was is like somebody's like put, punching in a phone number in this recording and the bird is repeating the tones and so they use the tones to figure out the phone number. Amazing. It also has like uh, the worst example of a trans villain of all time. I have heard of that. Yeah. It's so bad. It's also absolutely like, I don't know. Now I really want you to watch it and then you can be angry with me about how if they were witches, it would have made one more sense. <laughs> Two, way more badass. <laughs> also, we can talk about how um, the teacher literally gets with a minor. I, I mean, I'm watching Skins right now, and that definitely happens also. Yeah, but it's a little bit different feelings there. Um, Anyways. So, so yeah, if you keep... If you keep upping the emotional ante, things are going to escalate to unbelievable extremes. Uh, after eight seasons with roughly 20 episodes per season, all that ramping up means... All of that ramping up means that we have seen Damon and Stefan kill hundreds maybe thousands of people in season eight they are literally piling up bodies because we have already seen them kill right we in season one we see them kill people okay they kill a person here a person there if it if we want to have the same emotional impact that we had in season one with them killing somebody mm-hmm. now they have to kill 20 people at a time yeah um so in season eight like they're they're literally piling up bodies to show how awful you know tortured stuck in a horrible deal they are but season eight is also clearly about redemption so so like how are you supposed to redeem these people who are literally stacking up bodies like multiple times per episode and like this isn't even touching on issues of consent assault manipulation and yeah. so on this is just the easiest thing to quantify because we can literally see the bodies and stacked up and unlike the other the other issues in the show it seems to understand that murder is wrong i'm not so sure about the issues with consent manipulation i think that that might be its issue Mm-hmm. allow murder but question the manipulation and sexual assault yeah like the fact that the murder sh- sure but let's talk about the other problematic thing the, the fact that the show doesn't seem to understand that manipulation assault and and the issues of consent and so on are th- that it doesn't understand that those are wrong is one of the other issues with how with how everything plays out did you realize that once they put caroline with a lark uh caroline had literally gotten with every single male <laughs> in the show good for her Every single one. Matt, Tyler, Stefan, Damon, Anna Larrick. Jeremy? Not Jeremy. You're right. Not Jeremy, not Kai. That's it. <laughs> that's it. All the main dudes. And that's because Jeremy was with Bonnie the whole time. It's true. Um, so if we can the agree. The great love that just disappeared. 
So if we can agree that the show is in the tradition of soap opera and melodrama, even if it isn't like adhering to every piece of those things, that's one source of this just like frankly absurd ramping up of violence to achieve the emotional goals. By season eight, we need bodies piled up to see how far Damon and Stefan have fallen because we've already seen them murder hundreds of people. At least now they are supposedly only killing bad people. Right now they've added a moral dimension to instead of just murder is wrong. It's like, well, murder is okay if it's the bad ones. Um, But I think we also need to consider the fact that the Vampire Diaries seems to also be in the tradition of serials, which for a long time were episodic stories you could turn into or out of week to week. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some crossover here with soap opera because we're not talking about genre. We're talking about modes or however you want to call that. These started on the radio, serials did, but were also part of TV, especially before the invention of TiVo and streaming and so on. I put in the notes here, TiVo. That's something I haven't heard in a while. <laughs> Dates us. Well, yeah. I How mean, many kids know about TiVo? <laughs> like now, now that meth because of TiVo and because of people's ability to record shows and watch them, we have now opportunities for different kinds of storytelling where we're not yeah. hook and then finish the hook and then continue and then new hook. We don't do that kind of storytelling as much in TV anymore because you're expected to tune into every single episode. For those who don't know, TiVo was like the original story or a bunch of your shows so you can binge or, yeah. or just watch because you were out at a kid's recital. Yeah. Know. And it, well, I mean, there was also taping, like literally using a tape yeah. to record. Um, but that even, you know, people might have taped shows in the past before the invention of, um, of TiVo, but, uh, from my understanding, this was largely a fandom behavior, as in like practiced by people who were members of a fandom, as opposed to just the average like, like if you missed an episode of the epi- of the X Files, and you were just like not a fandom person, then you're just like, well, it doesn't matter. The plot's not going to be huge. Like I can catch up from the next one. Whereas like if you miss an episode of Game of Thrones, like you're fucked. You got to watch yeah. it. I definitely taped things. Yeah, I definitely t- I definitely taped like a lot of Avril Lavigne stuff. <laughs> Wait, like I remember uh, I don't have it on me, but there's like a very famous I think it's Henry Jenkins textual po- textual poachers where he talks about he's like a very, very famous fandom scholar. Um, he talks about fandom behaviors. And one of one of like the ones that he talks about quite a bit is the fans of the Beauty and the Beast show from like the late 80s, early 90s, I think. And the fact that fans would tape episodes and share them with one another for if somebody missed an episode Hmm. but that was a fan behavior less so like not something necessarily that the average person would do i think that also happened with sailor moon yes i think you're totally right now um so you didn't at this point in time with this kind of storytelling you really didn't have to if you missed an episode you missed an episode it wasn't a big deal you could you could learn from context clues yeah you could learn from context and the story would be crafted in such a way that you could appreciate it even if you did miss a previous episode um you could tune in next week and you would have everything you needed to know, whether because of a recap or just because the story wasn't really interested in what happened in the last episode. The tradition, the tradition of TV storytelling was this kind of like episode by episode, you know, with less series long arcs. Um, But some shows did start integrating season long arcs as well as the episodic stories, including the X-Files, which I mentioned earlier, um, which sort of transitioned into the more dominant watch every episode or you're going to be lost method of storytelling on TV that we have today. I remember, like, I distinctly remember this happening because a couple of friends really liked the show Heroes. And I'm being one. Huh? I I loved Heroes. Yeah, you and my husband. Josh, it was not good. You need the first season's pretty good. The rest of it was bad. Um, I so I I distinctly remember this this kind of shift because I did not have TiVo. I grew up super poor. I didn't even have cable. 
Um, you watch TV at my house. I, yeah, I would watch TV at your or house. Your grandparents. Yeah, but um, I remember when Heroes started, you and a couple other friends told me it was really good, and then I. I hadn't watched the first two episodes, so I tried to start with the third episode. I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck's going on. I don't understand this at all. I don't like this show. Um, and it was kind of at that point that I realized that that like this is doing this is telling a story differently than I am used to. Um, and now that has become the dominant mode of storytelling on TV. But there's exceptions like a lot of sitcoms and that kind of thing. You can kind of tune in week to week and, you know, make of it what you will. But uh, most shows, I would say, or a lot of shows at least, are they have a, a storyline that continues from both from episode to episode and across an entire season. So I think The Vampire Diaries is in that kind of hybrid place, right? Because if, say, my husband walks in to see Caroline pregnant and asks, why is Caroline pregnant? I cannot give him a simple answer. I cannot say, oh, it's because she got pregnant the way most people got pregnant, right? Caroline is not pregnant because it is the expected arc for a relationship. She is pregnant with the children of a man she is not and never has been romantically involved with because a witch magically teleported her, her babies as she died into Caroline's womb and then magically hid them using a cloaking spell. And she is carrying them to term because they are the last witches of a special, special coven. And also Alaric's last memory of his ex who was killed mid-wedding. There are so many times Bob would come in and be like, what is happening? I was like, I literally cannot explain it to you and don't have like the ability, to, like, or not the ability, but like the emotional time. To yeah, I just, you. who has it's the time? It's not worth it for me, for you to go, I don't care. Yeah. Um, like, also, can you imagine the show doing an abortion storyline? Because it would be a fucking nightmare. It would be a fucking nightmare. So, of course, she had to carry the babies to term, but whatever. They should have done it, those cowards. My, my point here is that, like, it, on the one hand, it's going episode by episode. But on the other hand, there's so much complexity woven into the plots that like it's it's also series long. So at the same time, these arcs are resolved so fast, just so fast, mm -hmm. like especially towards the last season. Yeah. One of my annoyances with the show is that something interesting might pop up, such as Catherine of as Queen of Hell. But it's oh, you're going to say queer. No, <laughs> Catherine is queer. But uh, but it's gone in just a handful of episodes like we resolve that so fast. Things don't really have staying power in the show, which gives it a fun and sort of frenetic play pace in that you never, like you literally never know what's going to happen episode to episode. I'm going to guess that happened because they only had uh, Nina Dobrev for so long. Yeah. Um, Do you know she's from whatever country? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that mm -hmm. until I was looking more about Catherine because she's the one of the most interesting people. That was the worst part about losing her. Mm -hmm. was losing Catherine because I would watch a show just about Catherine because they let Catherine be evil. Yeah. There's no like Catherine gets a redemption. No. No, like, she just, she's just bad. She's, she's just, just bad. mean. Even when you're like, oh, she loves what's his name. That's the redemption. No, she's still fucking awful. Yeah. She just loves someone. Yeah. Um. So because like you because of this frenetic pace, because things are resolved so quickly, it's really hard to see any kind of long term growth or arc for the characters, which brings me back to how we're meant to forgive these characters who do such awful things and who do them with such frequency especially Damon who has done more awful shit than anybody in this show except maybe Ever. Catherine um, I could go on and on about the attempt at redemption in the last season but suffice it to say I think it's bullshit and that's just how it is like I understand where they were trying to go with the arc but you gotta set it up earlier than that if you're gonna slam dunk it I just think after going through everything I just wish 
I wish there would have been, I understand that they have to have a, a situation in which Damon's redeemed. Like, I understand that. But I just think at this point, like, just let Damon be Damon. Yeah. That's like, th- let him be like, I'm a, like, he kind of went there for a little bit. Like, I'm a bad person and that's just how it is. Yeah. I don't know how this was resolved in the books. Like, I don't know. I don't know how that played out. But like, this, the show feels, feels very influenced by Twilight for me. It's precisely because of that. Because when you read vampire fiction or watch vampire fiction from prior to Twilight, there's less emphasis on redemption. Um, there's more emphasis like it can be tragic like uh, interview with the vampire the relationship between the two vampires is tragic right Mm -hmm. you can feel for them even as you acknowledge like hey you're you're both pretty fucked up you're both pretty fucked up Um, but you can still be like but you know you're not so fucked up that like your life is perfect like you deserve everything that's happening everybody who watched these these shows I'm thinking of one book I read in particular that I'm not reading anymore but uh, was like what if we just let Damon be bad oh wait that's dark romance yeah it's (laughs) they all were like no we'll just do it how we want to do it I thought I thought that Damon's arc in maybe the beginning of season seven or the end sorry the beginning of season eight and maybe the end of season seven where he's just like no I'm I'm a bad fucking where he took the Rachel turn as I described it to Mary referring to Rachel from Animorphs who's just like oh you need like because she gets used as the the violent tool so everybody else can keep their hands clean um, I thought that that was a really interesting turn for Damon. Mm-hmm. I was like, I like that. That feels like a logical evolution for this character who is now concerned with his own morality, but also like he's fucked up so many different ways. Like, how can he be redeemed? I was like, that I think is effective. Um, they should have got the Animorph writers. Seriously. Uh, because this narrative is serialized and because it goes on for eight fucking seasons, the constant ramping up and dialing back of tension, these like wild storylines based on the idea of monstrousness and the sort of Cain and Abel, good brother, bad brother dynamic of Stephen and Stefan means that since the show is content to forget how shitty Damon has been in the past in the service of whatever story they're currently telling, the audience is also able or encouraged to forget whatever awful shit Damon has done in the past. And I don't mean that in like the audience is not smart enough to understand that Damon has done terrible things. That's not what I mean. I mean that in the sense that the show doesn't care because an eight season long arc for Damon's character isn't the kind of story that they are telling. They're telling short term in the moment arcs, right? In which Damon can have a Damon can have a little growth as a treat and then he's going to regress again and then he's going to grow and then he's going to regress. And by the time the show is over, like Damon is a demonstrably better person than he was in the beginning. But like he's still a shit. Like, he's still a shit. Right. Yeah. He didn't really go anywhere. And that's fine. That's not bad. It's just that when we're looking at this show and we're asking questions like, well, like, how am I expected to forgive Damon for manipulating Caroline so early on and potentially having sex with her without full consent? It's like, well, the show didn't give a shit about that because that's not the kind of story that they're telling. Everybody on the show forgot about like every, all of the characters on the show forgot about it because the writers wanted them to forget about it. It was no longer necessary because they took the story in a different direction. Now, that doesn't mean that the writers are absolved from from that. It just means that that's the kind of story that they're telling. It's not I like I don't believe that the show, the writers or the showrunners here were out here like, oh, we're going to tell a story about this man who may or may not be a rapist. Uh, and we're going to make you sympathetic toward him. I think that they literally just said, oh, actually, we don't want to tell that kind of story about Damon anymore. So we're yeah. just going to pretend it never happened. Is that effective storytelling? Not really. If you ha- like, if you 
watch this show now with, you know, a box of DVDs or streaming on Netflix or, you know, Reddit posts recounting every single episode, an entire fan wiki. Like you can go back and see literally everything that Damon has ever done. Mm -hmm. If you watch this show week to week, chances are you probably forgot about the shit that Damon did in season one. (laughs) Um, And again, that doesn't make it right. It's just a different method of storytelling. Um, it's perfectly fair, I would say, to run like an anti-Damon hate blog or whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat. Personally, I thought Damon was the most compelling character on the show, and I would rather watch his antics than most of the other characters, maybe all of the other characters. Yeah. I like Caroline. Um, I love yeah, the two. even Caroline kind of got boring. She, she did. As soon as she got pregnant. Um, as soon as, like, she turned from being, she, when she turned her humanity back on, she got boring. Yeah, it's true. And I'm so sad because Caroline was my absolute favorite character. She just, she challenged things. She was so interesting because she, she did do horrible things, but we, I don't feel like she needed this redemption arc and mm-hmm. she was just Caroline. Yeah. She was the true moral compass of the show. Yeah. I would, ra- so I would rather watch Damon's antics than, than most other characters. But I think in order to understand why things play out the way they do, why we're expected to just forgive Damon and Stefan and Caroline, et cetera, et cetera, despite the completely unforgivable forgivable things that they do, we have to understand that the show is giving us a series of events that are tenuously related and saying, all right, folks, have a good time with this one until we decide it doesn't matter anymore because, to be honest, we don't expect you to tune in every week. Now, that changes, again, when you watch the show on Netflix or on DVD or whatever, because you're watching it, you know, front to back. You're watching the in, in, its, in its entirety. But when the show started, that may not have been the expectation for how you were going to watch it. And obviously, I don't know what's going on in the TV, the the Vampire Diaries writing room, but I imagine that over eight seasons, I, God, I can't even fathom, um, over eight seasons with a serialized approach and with one of the main stars leaving midway through the show, um, they were more focused on being entertaining over the course of episodes rather than over the course of seasons. Um, I'm sure to some degree that they had narrative arcs they hoped to achieve by the end of the series, but it's also pretty clear that very little development happens from season to season. There are arcs within each season, then one larger arc in the season itself, but the focus seems to be primarily on A, keeping you interested enough to watch most episodes without needing to watch all episodes, and B, going on as long as possible. Right? Like that seems to be the main goal. How can we keep people watching the show as long as we possibly can while also. Um, keeping the show going as long as possible. And the answer is by being melodramatic, by throwing in all of these wild plot elements, by switching up relationships every week, that kind of thing. Um, and that, and all of that, I think, is how in this show in particular, you end up with a character like Damon who has done truly reprehensible things. He's killed a lot of people, but there's also the manipulation and arguably sec- sexual assault early in the show. Mm-hmm. But we nonetheless are meant to root for him, right? And I do root for him. Like, as I said, the part where he kind of takes that Rachel turn, I was like, oh, I genuinely really like this. Yeah, they just let him, let him just, just do it. Just doing that. Another consequence of this kind of serialized narrative, much like Supernatural, is that to keep viewers engaged you have to keep upping the stakes, which means introducing more and more death and depravity and so on, especially once they reached a point where they did want Damon to be a character you root for, which means everybody else has to get worse, which means when it's Damon's time to be bad again, he has to get worse and so on. It's just like this vicious cycle of like, Damon's bad. Oh, we want Damon to be good now, so everybody else has to be bad. Oh, but we want Damon to be bad again, so now he has to be worse than he was originally. And you just end up with like just utter depravity. Um, And maybe you see this as bad storytelling. I didn't really like it, but 
when you understand the type of narratives the creators are working with, you can at least understand why these choices were made. I think it didn't bother me because I was like, yeah, get bad. Get worse. Get worse. Because that's when people were interesting. At the end, that's when people were interesting. Like I mean, I mean the storytelling being bad, not oh. the not the characters. Oh. I'm fine with the characters being bad. I would rather they be bad all the time. Oh. I don't come to vampire stories to be comforted. It just was like, yeah, okay, well then, yeah, no, it's not good. <laughs> um, I don't think the creators were like sitting around like everything Damon did was fine so much as they were like, the show must go on. And so we're just going to conveniently forget about how we characterized him in the beginning. With And with the last season being about the possibility for redemption with characters as awful as these are, I think it was pretty much doomed to fail in a broad sense. Like Damon and Stefan really did nothing to atone for their previous crimes. Uh, like, like, yes, in the end, Damon and Stefan are both willing to sacrifice themselves to save Mystic Falls. And, and we can we can be like, yes, that was um, that was a sacrifice that you made. But like, what does that do for all the families of the people they murdered? Like, it doesn't do anything. Uh, the guy who plays Klaus had made some comments about this. About how <laughs> everyone loves Klaus and he's like, but you know, he, he like started naming off all the people he's murdered. Yeah, like, everybody on this show is is pretty fucking awful. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean that, like, this the storytellers have done a poor job. It just means that they are telling a specific kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the last season in isolation, I think it works better. Like if, if I were to just watch season eight of The Vampire Diaries, there'd be a lot I didn't understand. Uh, and I would have to, you know, overlook a lot of death. But you can tell that they tried to overcome this by having Damon only want to kill evil people and Stefan being the one to sacrifice himself in the end. They're clearly trying to tell the story about redemption that if viewed in isolation from every other awful thing that Damon and Stefan have done you know kind of works like it's not great but it kind of works yeah it's just kind of hard like there's some things in there that are always going to be hard for me to get over mm-hmm. that they like the fact that he sexually assaulted caroline mm-hmm. damon's sexual assault and like the fact that elena's like i'm still gonna date you yeah and it's just because the, the showrunners presumably again i wasn't there presumably the showrunners saw the chemistry that nina dobrev and ian somerhalder had together and were like oh fuck Wait, this is a lot better than what we had planned. We're just going to pretend that that whole sexual assault thing didn't really happen. Yeah. And it's like, is that great? No, it's not. But, you know, they were trying to tell a different story than they were trying to tell in the beginning. And that's kind of what happens with serialized narrative. Well, and they allowed Caroline to get smarter, I guess. Yes, that's she true. She was so mean and dumb in the beginning. It's true. Um I I don't know that we are meant to read the show in its entirety other than what they choose to remind us of. Like, if they don't bother to remind me of it while I'm watching seasons, I think it's safe to say that it doesn't matter. I 100% agree. Um, I totally agree. Again, this is... Because we would have have to... This, it really wouldn't work if we had to think about those things and, Mm -hmm. and and believe that they truly mattered because it just... They're not doing enough to... Like resolve those issues. It's almost like canon is reinvented with every new episode, unless they choose to remind you of something that happened already. Absolutely, there are so many things. Where I'm like, wait, that doesn't track with mm-hmm. the last season at all. Yeah, and it, and it's just because they decided to take the story in a different direction, which is something that you're like is okay to do in serialized narrative, but not so much by modern TV storytelling standards. Um, and again, this doesn't make the show mean that the show has committed no sins in its storytelling, only that if we try to judge it by the standards of something like The Good Place, we're kind of comparing apples to oranges. That's not how you're meant to read the show. Blood oranges. Apples to blood oranges. <laughs> um, Mary. That's what they call me. I would like to tell you about Dwarven Rations. I really want cake now. Good. 
I want cake too. I, I really wanted cake last night, and Bob's like, "Do you want me to make you cake?" I'm like, "I want cake, but I don't want to wait for cake." Maybe I'll go out and get a cake. Oh, that's such a good. Idea. I want to go out and get cake, but I have to go home. Um, Dwarven rations make artisanal cakes with a dedication to quality. They are made in Bermuda. They're shipped worldwide, and they've been doing that for over twenty years. They're moist as fuck. They are so. How the fuck did they're they get those cakes fuck. so moist in the mail? Moist mail. Moist mail. <laughs> Uh, most of the time you don't want your mail to be moist, but when it's a cake, you do. Yeah, it's a good moist cake mail. <laughs> moist mail cake. They offer many, many Not flavors. M-A-L-E. <laughs> they offer many flavors. Traditional, so lemon and Madagascar vanilla, chocolate, orange and lemon, like a rum punch, coconut, so coconut shreds with the rum cake flavor for a pina colada taste, and rum and ginger, apricots and ginger in the, in the spirit of a dark and stormy. Um, and even better, each box includes a random tabletop RPG die. So not only do you get cake, but you get a little die too. It's really good and I really am craving it right now. <laughs> um, they also offer their, their own special incredibly low-cost custom adverti- advertising cake kit for people who want a new merch product for their fan base, but to not have to buy f- and pay for and ship uh, the, the inventory because that's no fun. They handle also, all- How are you going to get that cake moist? Yeah, you don't know their secrets. You don't know their secrets. Um, They do all of that for you, including keeping that cake moist in the mail. And then then they send you the cash and the cakes as the cakes sell. Who wants nothing more than cash and cakes? Right? That's that's the dream. Um, It's great for starting up merch as it has little to no upfront cost. Uh, And all the cakes are fantasy themed and made by a dedicated group of gamers, nerds, and artists. Currently, they are working out of the Bermuda Rum Cake Company in Bermuda, but are working to get a stateside bakery slash gaming center up and running in the coming months and years. So if you buy a cake, you are helping make that happen. Uh, To find out more, you can go to their webpage at uh, docglass.com slash dwarven rations that's d-o-c-k-g-l-a-s-s dot com slash dwarven rations or you can click the link in our show notes to go right there so to kind of return to the question of forgiving these characters and not forgiving these characters shifting away from the format of the show and toward its content i think the humanity switch is a really interesting feature uh, apparently they like the vampires within the show can make the choice to turn on or off their human feelings. And at one point, Rose, an older vampire, says that after a few centuries, the humanity switch is no longer even relevant. That just boggles my mind. Well, and then they just throw that out the window too, right? Like it never comes up again. <laughs> so again, like there's a lot of this show that's just like, it matters in the moment, but it doesn't matter later. Um, it kind of raises the question of whether a vampire who kills with their humanity on is more morally reprehensible than the one who kills with it off. I never thought about this. And then reading the 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 time the um, outline, I was like, oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, is the morally bad thing turning off humanity or is it killing? What about rippers, right? Because rippers are clearly a extremely heavy handed and goofy metaphor for addiction. Uh, is it less morally reprehensible because someone like Stefan is essentially an addict or is it worse because he either puts himself in a position to be tempted or because he turns his humanity off so he doesn't have to feel guilty about it? Um, so this is a quote from switching it on off uh, on slash off emotional performativity and melodrama in the Vampire Diaries, which is by Malin Lidstrom Brock, 
who writes, The Vampire Diaries is a serial, however, that is, a television format where a narrative develops across a sequence of episodes. Contrary to the series, serialized narratives are defined by, quote, shifting perspectives and extended middles, unquote, which, quote, contribute to the moral complications that surround characters, unquote. As a serial, then, the show is unable to sustain a moral universe characterized by a clear categorization of good and evil for very long. Halfway through the show's first season, viewers learn that Damon's presence in Mystic Falls is secretly motivated by love. He aims to release the vampire Catherine from a tomb in which he thinks that she has been enclosed for the last 146 years. When Damon learns that Catherine was never entombed and that she neglected to let him know, he feels betrayed and allows his budding feelings for Elena to bloom. In the process, his status as an evil brother is compromised and his change of heart sets the stage for a new romantic coupling in season three. The coupling between Damon and Elena is facilitated by the revelation that human blood causes Stefan to lose control and kill people indiscriminately. Now, all of that was about season season like the first few seasons but i find this point really interesting not only because it reaffirms my earlier point that i think by nature of being a serial it's impossible for the show to really have any grounded sense of morality um but also because of the point that brock makes here about stefan and his relationship with elena elena is very much the moral center of the show right this fucking girl does nothing wrong ever and that is why i don't like her (laughs) I get unrelatable. Um, yet she's drawn to Damon, who is the objectively worst brother in the beginning of the show, right? Like in the beginning of the show, we never see Damon do anything wrong. He's the perfect match for Elena until we find out that Stefan is a ripper. Um, but because we learn that Damon is motivated by love and that Stefan can easily slip into and out of control, um, the relationship between Damon and Elena becomes the foundational one for the show. Un- like I'm sure in no small part because of the chemistry between Ian Somerolder and Nina Dobrev who were dating in real life. Mm-hmm. I find the argument that Steven's potential to slip out of control makes him a less suitable partner. Just him Steven. Did I? <laughs> Jesus. I love it. Uh, I find the argument that Stefan's potential to slip out of control makes him a less suitable partner for Elena really interesting because it tracks with something we've talked about in vampire narratives before. The idea that one of the appealing things about the modern modern day, like quote unquote, vegetarian vampire is that he embodies much of the appeal of an old fashioned masculine man with the self-control and mastery over traits that we can read as adjacent to toxic, toxic masculinity. It's just not what I'm here for. (laughs) Stefan in not being entirely in control of himself is not that character right he gives the appearance on on first impression of being that quote unquote vegetarian vampire because he's in control of his urges but once he does feed on somebody it's clear that he's not in control at all therefore he is unsuitable for that sort of post twilight um, really bland brunette protagonist Um, Damon, in being a shithead, but a shithead who is who is largely in control of himself, does become that character. Damon has the ability to control those urges. He just chooses not to because he's a fuck. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. This doesn't really work as like a complete redemption arc. But when we think about it in this light, we can start to see why Damon is deemed to be the better partner for Elena, who is the moral center of the show, even when she's not like physically there. Um, like because he is in control of his actions, he is a better match for this type of story than Stefan is. Because he can be better for her. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this is another quote from that scene. Do you know how many times reading this, I almost put like 
raspberry noise. (laughs) Uh, This is another quote from that same essay by Brock. Uh, In line with Judith Butler's theory on gender, the vampire's display of regret can be understood as performative, indicating that, quote, humanity in the vampire diaries is an empty category. This interpretation is both confirmed and complicated by the show's melodramatic mode, which strives to uphold the distinction not only between good vampires and bad, but also between humans and vampires, yet simultaneously recognizes the impossibility of doing so. The most striking role reversal on the show can be attributed to the protagonist, Elena. A study of Elena made clear that quote-unquote humanity defined as goodness is an equally unstable category when it comes to the human characters on the show. When Bonnie finds out that her friend Caroline has killed a person shortly after becoming a vampire, she momentarily experiences a moral dilemma. Quote, I can't ignore what happened. If you want to be friends, you have to prove that the Caroline I remember isn't gone. Unquote. Although Bonnie objects to Caroline's vampire behavior, ultimately she is willing to overlook that Caroline is now a murderer because she wishes to remain friends with her. Like the other characters that choose to practice forgiveness on the show, she decides to, quote, take a page from the Elena Gilbert handbook, unquote. A subjective and personal moral outlook equals moral relativism. Logically, then, no person's view should be preferable to another's on the show. Because of Elena's central position as heroine, however, her views motivate events in the serialized narrative and her sense of pathos excuses the vampire's violent behavior. Sorry for that really long quote, but like I tried to like just sum it up myself and I was basically just quoting anyway. <laughs> so I'm just like, I'll just quote the whole thing. So... Everybody in this show is essentially striving to be more like Elena because her moral view- views seem to already be perfect. Elena Elena enters the show as a morally perfect character and ends the show as a morally perfect character. She Elena embodies the humanity side of the humanity switch, right? If you want to see it that way. Um, with forgiveness being one of Elena's very clear and present values and Elena standing in for the most purely altruistic form of humanity, humanity then needs to include things like forgiveness, altruism, kindness, etc. Because those are Elena's values. When we're looking at the concept of the humanity switch, which is really ill-defined, and like I said, Rose straight up says it doesn't apply to centuries old vampires. But then again, how are we supposed to know how seriously we should take that because it never comes up again? Um, So when we're looking at the idea of switching it on and off, like we are switching on and off those values, not necessarily humanity, like the state of being human, because humanity in the show is not just the state of being human. It's a mix of emotions and actions that constitute like moral personhood, right? It's not just humanity. It's, it's a moral form of personhood. Um, a vampire can still have humanity. A human can act inhuman, inhumanly, inhumanely. That's, I think that has a different meaning. They can act inhuman. I think it's, yeah, I think those are two different, two different things. Yeah. Inhumanely um, and inhuman. Yeah. So one is like a feeling and one is like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. It's but. not, it's not the same. So a, a vampire can act in a human fashion and a human can act in an inhuman fashion. Um, so we have to understand that the like quote unquote humanity switch is less about humanity and more about some set of ephemeral qualities that seem to vary from person to person. I mean, we see how humans act without remorse for their atrocities in the show too, right? Shane, that guy sucked. Wes, <laughs> many of the people at the armory, even Kai to an extent, like, yeah, Kai is, uh, it becomes a witch and he was born to witches, but he's mostly human for a lot of the awful things that he does. Yeah. Um, they don't have to turn their humanity off to act without remorse for what they've done. 
because they're humans. They don't have a quote unquote humanity switch. They just do shitty things because people do shitty things. I imagine when they're like switch your humanity switch when they talk about that, that like in their brain, they're literally going to like a big switch. (laughs) Pulling a big lever. (laughs) Humanity off. Uh, I'm sure at certain points the show is trying to say something about the quality of humanity, but it's not really coherent, coherent nor is it carried through from arc to arc. So The, the idea that this show would try to say anything mean- meaningful about anything is laughable. <laughs> they might on like a short term arc. But then they just ruin it. But then they'll just undo it when yeah, it's not convenient anymore. Exactly. So. Like, so it doesn't, if, I feel like if it ever did, it was by accident. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I just don't, I don't trust these writers. Yeah. Uh, so this is another quote from that same essay by Brock. Elena's transition to a vampire illustrates the instability of the very categories human and vampire and the recognition that, quote, humanity on the show is established through emotional performance rather than through any inherent human qualities. So Elena is always our most human character, even when she is literally not human. Right. She is always the character that we would look at and say that's humanity. Uh, even at her worst, she kills like two people. Uh, which I think is above average in terms of humans killing people, but (laughs) I don't know. I haven't looked that up. Um, And she's mostly just cruel and manipulative, right? Which obviously isn't great, but is significantly different from Caroline compelling people to do surgeries on people who are awake, literally just Damon and Stefan's killing spree. Like the worst thing that Elena does is like absolutely like eating an apple next to a bowl of hot sauce like it's just not this uh, totally uncomparable um however that state of humanity exists not because she is human but because of the actions she does and does not do and the emotions that she performs so this essay uses judith butler's concept of performing gender to form its idea of performing emotions and humanity it is worth reading butler to understand what performance means in this context um, because it's easy to understand it differently than Butler intends it. And Butler is a notoriously difficult writer to read, um, but their work is very good and I recommend it. Um, So to be clear, uh, performance in Butler's terms is not performance as in artifice or being fake. So to say I perform gender is not saying that I woke up this morning and decided to pretend to be a woman. It's saying that my womanhood is uh, pre- not predicated. My womanhood, my state of being a woman is a series of things. Um, oh, it's so complicated. Uh, the gender that I perform is something I perform through my actions, my emotions and things like clothing. And it's not less real because it is performed. Because as Butler says, gender proves to be performance. That is constituting the identity it is purported to be. In this sense, gender is always a doing, though not by, not a doing by a subject who might be said to pre-exist the deed. That's unquote. Uh, in essence, gender is a performance because it's something that we do, something that we construct, something that we make, not because we are always trying to fit a pre-existing mold stemming from something solid and definable in front of us. There is no gender without our construction of it, no matter what that construction looks like. So gender, my gender of woman, there is not somewhere in Plato's world of forms the ideal woman that I am performing. My version of woman is constructed as I construct it, but that does not make it less real than anybody else's construction of womanhood. That's not confusing. I know. I know. It's really hard to grasp. Once you get it, it's like somebody turned the light on. Um, but it is. It is difficult. The thing to understand is that Butler is not saying that is not saying performance in the sense of fake. 
they are saying performance in the sense of every time I get up in the morning and I choose my clothes and they they make me feel validated as a woman that's gender performance that is the the version of gender I have chosen to perform and it's still valid and it's still absolutely valid because there is no inherent quality of woman for me to capture everything is a performance therefore it can't be invalid because it's all performance yeah like i i am sure that they argue at some point that some things like are like i don't think they think that everything ever is performance but in terms of something as intangible as gender um there is no real gender to say like that one's real and we're all trying to emulate that instead gender is constructed and performed by each individual um i mean when you look at the category of woman and you go back all the way in history like if i go back to you know i don't know how far back history goes we'll just pretend a thousand you know a thousand bc um and you look at the category of woman then and you look at the category of woman now they look quite different from one another but would we say that modern woman or past woman is not woman because they don't look the same no women are the dancer are they woman or are they dancer because womanhood is not something um it is not something inherent it doesn't it's not real quote unquote in the sense that there is no defined version of womanhood this is arm but what is woman (laughs) (laughs) this is like yeah it's it's hard it is hard to articulate and it is hard to grasp but once you do everything makes a lot more sense um so likewise in the show humanity is not an inherent thing tied to our bodies it is something done it is something created it is a state of being not or rather it is a state of doing right you're saying humanity? Humanity, yes. Is that, I guess that, like, because I had a hard time when Caroline turned off her humanity switch where she was still trying to be good. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I guess that would make sense because it's it's her form of humanity that she's turned off and there's still, I mean, there has, still has to be some type of humanity there, right? Right. I think, I think when we think of it in the way that Butler describes gender, it makes a little bit more sense because humanity is a thing that we do. It is not a thing that we are. It's a thing that we do. I And I guess another way to articulate this is the way I feel about feminism. Um, I don't, the reason why I have trouble. She's a misogynist. She's so. a misogynist. No, I, in the same way that I feel uncomfortable calling a piece of media feminist or most pieces of media, especially mainstream media, um, I don't, I don't want to call them feminists because they are not, um, they're not performing. They are, they're not acting. They are created. Uh, they are not doing anything. Fem- feminism to me is something that you do, uh, not something that you so, are. So humanity is something that you do, not something that you are. Would the act of making something that be feminist, like if I'm making a film that some people are calling feminist, but you wouldn't, would the act of making that film be feminist? Could be. Okay. Um, it would it would depend on a lot of factors, but if it was actually feminist, yeah, I and think not misogynistic like you. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm a misogynist. So. Yeah. Um, so, so anything is invalid when it comes to feminism. it's true. Uh, so, like I said, humanity in the show is not an inherent thing tied to our bodies, like the body of a human. It is something done and created, and that seems at odd a bit with at odds a bit. Excuse me, with the concept of the humanity switch, right? If it can be turned on and off, how can we say that humanity is something done or created rather than something inherent, and if not truly biological, something magical? Well, we can accept that the Vampire Diaries writers probably did not sit down and think humanity is just like Butler's concept of gender. Let's do exactly that. 
Um, so some inconsistency is expected. But I, I think that when we think of humanity as something done, something that is created through performance rather than something innate, the treatment of humanity becomes much more interesting in the show. Instead of being like, oh, uh, Caroline has her humanity off, we can instead say, Caroline is performing something different here. What does this mean? What are we saying about Caroline when she has chosen to perform this differently? Um, so this is another quote from Brock here. Um, the neoliberal need to control personal conduct suggests that the emotionally informed rationality in the vampire diaries is not so much a sign of adolescent narcissism as a reflection of a necessary competence in the neoliberal market economy. According to Sarah Ahmed, uh, emotions are not personal feelings that reside in individuals. Instead, they are essential and practical tools for understanding how we, quote, become invested in particular power structures, unquote. Unlike feelings, this is another long quote, I'm sorry. Unlike feelings, emotions are public displays that can be either genuine or false. In that respect, emotional display is always performative. People who invest emotionally in a neoliberal economy seem to believe that it will lead to a better society, or as Slavoj Žižek expresses it. I'm so sorry if I said that wrong. That's one of those names that I read constantly, but I haven't actually heard said aloud. Um, they believe that they can both, quote, have the ca global capitalist cake, thrive as entrepreneurs and eat it, endorse the anti-capitalist causes of social responsibility, ecological concern, etc. Unquote. But is moist? But is that cake moist? Uh, between 1993 and 2003, the number of humanitarian foundations in the U.S. rose by 77%. During this time, business moguls such as Bill Gates and George Soros became strongly associated with corporate charity. Capitalism without an element of self-criticism built in is no longer deemed morally acceptable. When the vampire's impulses are given free reign in the vampire diaries, they invariably cause death and destruction. The solution is not to abstain from drinking blood, however, but to control the urge, or as Caroline explains to her mother, quote, I want to kill. It's my basic nature now, but on a healthy nature, I can control it. I'm getting better at it. I'm better than Stefan. He's a bit of a problem drinker, unquote. When death does occur, as it often will in the vampire diaries, the proper response is not denial of one's actions, but a verbal admission of guilt. So that's a, there's a lot that goes on in this quote. So we're going to take it piece by piece because, like I said, it's a lot. So Brock suggests that the control of personal conduct and the desire for rationality is tied into neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is a really complicated concept and the word gets thrown around a lot in places where it doesn't necessarily apply. So we're going to use the very basic and not comprehensive definition of ne neoliberalism here, which means an ideology, a political approach or a similar thing uh, that values the success of the free market and the economy as nearly or clearly the most important thing in a society. So success of the market, success of the economy is more important than everything else. That's that's neoliberalism and it's like simplest, simplest explanation I could come up with. This often means things like privatizing resources, deregulating corporations, and so on in the interest of making more money. The individual is highly prized in neoliberalism, like individual freedoms. It's just libertarianism? No, it's liberal. It's neoliberalism. It applies to all of our political parties. Oh, 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 oh. Neoliberalism. Oh. Neoliberalism. The Democratic Party is neoliberal. Um, I remember reading this. Despite liberal in the name it is not directly tied to any one u.s political party the democratic and republican party both favor neoliberalism even if individuals in those parties do not a really evident way of this is the fact of like the cdc cutting the recommendation for quarantining from 10 days to five days despite no evidence that you are actually healed after five days so or that you're no longer infectious after five days the reason being we need to get people back to work 
because the economy is more important than the lives of the individual, even if the individual is highly prized in a neoliberal society. So while Democrats previous year were upset that Trump was like, uh, we need people to work the blah, 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 saying, oh, how dare you are now like, oh, we need people to work. It's (laughs) because it's because they share that neoliberal value that the economy is the most important thing in society. Um, because we exist in a neoliberal society and Brock suggests that neoliberal societies are invested in controlled personal conduct as part of the emphasis on the individual, the version of sympathetic vision, sorry, the version of sympathetic vampires as creatures trying and failing to maintain control of their dark urges takes precedence. So when I what I'm saying here with regard to like the idea of um, personal responsibility is in the same way that uh, the a way that you can see this demonstrated and the fact that like neoliberal is not distinct from liberal. Um, you can be a neoliberal liberal. Um, the like the Democratic Party, for instance, generally favors socially progressive policies. Right. They favor um, gay marriage. They favor uh, abortion access, all of those kinds of stuff. We, generally speaking, the Democratic Party is in favor of those kinds of things. However, they still prioritize the economy above all else. That is what makes that is what constitutes neoliberalism. So they're in favor of individual freedom for sure, but they still prioritize the economy above that. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Cool. It's so funny because I asked that question and then I was reading this last night and I literally had the same thing and then I read what you said. I was like, that answers that, and I did the exact same thing. <laughs> um. It's okay. It w- it is shocking the amount of times I have to look up the same thing, like over and over and over again. Even though I, it, the words have literally come well, out of my so mouth. Well, it was so funny because I was reading it last night and I was like, "This is how you can tell Missy and I have been friends for so long." Because literally, my next train of thought, you answer, and I did it <laughs> twice. <laughs> um, so it, again, just to to refer back to the show. The ver- in the show, you have sympathetic vampires who do terrible things, who consume thing, who consume other people. But what's more important is their admission of guilt, right? In the same way that, like, the Democratic Party might, you know, say, like, "Oh yeah, um, it would be so we should, you know, implement X Y Z social policies," um, but you know people gotta people gotta have jobs or whatever and it's Mm -hmm. like yeah for sure so let's create better jobs or let's stop prioritizing the marketplace over all else you know let's create social safety nets um let's give a you know child care yeah so people can go to jobs exactly it's it's the it's the prioritization of the market above all else and then the admission of guilt or um or that kind of thing or using charity as a band-aid for social issues it's carbon offsets right carbon offsets don't do anything you still emitted the carbon right like <laughs> how about you just don't emit the carbon um so it's so in the show you have essentially like neoliberal vampires who like do terrible things and then they apologize for them and admit that they were wrong and that's enough within the context of the show there are other reasons that vampires with self-control are interesting and we talked about some of that in our last episode on the vampire diaries but what brock is arguing here is that in a neoliberal society neoliberalism seeps down into our fiction as well hence the emphasis on self-control and personal responsibility against something exploitative such as blood drinking or the ramifications of unregulated capitalism right um brock also argues that emotion like humanity in the vampire diaries is to some degree performance i have a little harder time with connecting emotions to this next part so bear with me as i stumble through it um brock suggests that emotional performance which is distinct from feelings which are more grounded in the body so like you feel a feeling your emotional performance may not quite match your feeling 
Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So like I can feel angry, but my emotional performance may not be one of anger. Um, so that what Brock is arguing is that that is similar to the emphasis on charity in a neoliberal society. Charity exists to put bandages over the wounds caused by unchecked, deregulated business and exploitation. In the modern world, you must perform regret about exploitation, such as conflict minerals and technological devices, environmental destruction, uh, child labor in the Mars company with their new anxious M&Ms. Um, <laughs> you have to perform those things to be considered moral, but ending those practices seems to be a bridge too far right instead of just not doing the bad thing you apologize for it you create a charity whatever whatever i'm a bitch but i at least i know I'm a yeah bitch. it's like that's just capitalism <laughs> uh similarly the emotional performance capitalist bitch <laughs> similarly the emotional performance of the vampires in the vampire diaries is a requirement to understand that they are moral beings despite their urge to kill Apology and guilt about the action is considered enough to make up for the action. And the vampires kill a lot of people when we know that they don't have to. But we are expected to forgive them because they apologize or because they didn't have their humanity on for whatever reason. It's fine. I mean, they could just not apologize. We'd still forgive them. (laughs) That should, in theory, make them more reprehensible. But the show often constructs turning off humanity as something done to protect the vampire that we should be sympathetic with. As if humans have never lost loved ones or been put in bad situations or whatever it's a very silly silly plot gimmick in my opinion and i would just rather see vampires go bad for a while because they're fucking vampires i know we should have just had a season where everybody was bad everybody's humanity was turned off it would have been good stuff like a humanity turned off his choice he's way better he's he's way more enjoyable in my opinion he sucks with elena oh god he really does he's better with caroline but he's best without humanity yeah it's true um, do you have anything else to say about the humanity switch? No. Okay. Big switch. <laughs> Just a big old lever. Just, you know, because they can like go into their brains and they can like have whole things. And so like it's in true. My they mind, have a they have a full on Sherlock mind palace in there. Yeah, I feel like like Caroline's is like you got to put it in a code to file it correctly. <laughs> you got to figure out where it is. Damon's is like a big fucking button. <laughs> Elena's is like a pretty light switch with a nice, you know, is everyone has a different Elena's switch. is fairy lights. Yeah, er, Elena's is fairy lights. And so like everybody has a different switch, but they're all it's a literal it's switch. It's a literal switch. It's a literal they have switch. to go into their mind palace to press. Uh, no one can no one can tell me differently. <laughs> um so the last thing I want to talk about in this episode, <laughs> and it's a big one, uh. is Bonnie and the show's overall problem with race. Woof, woof, indeed. So in the last episode of our last Vampire Diaries episode, we talked about Mystic Falls' overwhelming whiteness and how that's like, you know, not great, given that it's also a civil war town that just loves its founding families and it's totally uncritical of history other than the fact that Damon left the Confederacy. That's all we get. Um, We also talked about the show's sort of race blindness, um, as in they are pointedly ignoring race. Uh, and how that actually contributes to racism because of the yeah. kinds of stories that they're choosing to tell. There's there's plenty of shows that that um, when they are dealing with race, they're dealing with it in a, in, a, in, a, in a world in which race isn't an issue and it works. And this is mm-hmm. not one of those worlds. Yeah. We know race bi- blindness exists in the world of the Vampire Diaries behind the scenes and on screen because of the casting of Bonnie, who in the books was a white woman of Irish ancestry. Her name was Bonnie McCullough. And Kat Graham, who plays her, is a mixed-race black woman. However, instead of sticking with Bonnie's story and characterization from the books, they dramatically change them for the show. And we'll get more into that later. Because first, I want to talk about some other weird choices the Vampire Diaries made. The big one being the Travelers. 
Um, for those who, oh God, yeah. For those who aren't familiar, travelers can refer to a number of ethnic groups, typically in Europe, who are who are or were nomadic. The most famous of these groups here in the U.S. is probably the Romani people, who were previously referred to by a word now typically considered a slur. But there are other groups too. There's the Irish travelers who actually showed up briefly in Dairy Girls, uh, the Scottish Highland travelers, and so on. Um, and travelers refers again. I love Dairy Girls. I know Dairy Girls is so good. Um, travelers you know refers to these different nomadic groups but when we most often hear it we're hearing it refer to the romani people so by calling this group in the show travelers and having them have this kind of most of them have this kind of like eastern european accent um the vampire diaries is speaking of a group that is real even if the travelers in the show are not right like they have made a conscious well first of all i'm glad that they didn't use the slur to identify them like i guess surprising thank god for that it's surprising because back when this was out this is i don't think that was was, still pretty common that was really common yeah um so but they are still using the word travelers to refer to this group that is real, even if the travelers in the show are not, right? The Romani travelers are today still subject to discrimination and racism and were historically as well. Uh, in fact, their nomadic lifestyle often, not always, but often resulted from avoiding violent conflict, being exiled or fleeing persecution. Well, now you have things like, I don't think that's there anymore, but like there are like reality shows about it. Yeah. And- they were wild. Yeah. So, however, in the Vampire Diaries, the travelers are a coven of witches. Uh, Romani men, just as a historical note, Romani men were sometimes accused of witchcraft during the witch trials. Hmm. Um, so in the show, the travelers are witches. Uh, cursed to be unable to gather. If they gather with their people, plagues, fires, etc., begin to happen around them. So they have to keep moving at all time. Essentially, the travelers are magic people that have been cursed, which when you think about the real travelers is kind of like, you got you had to call them that? Um, this is an interesting choice, uh, given that they're using the real world travelers to describe this group, um, which is a real group of people who face discrimination and to attribute their nomadism to a curse that is a punishment for something their ancestors did is sure a choice that the vampire diaries did. You know, they did some research and like, oh yeah, they thought that they were doing good. You know that they're like, yeah, this is, this is really good. Like, you know, they were waiting for someone to ask about it. I'm like, did you know? Yeah, I just I just can feel them like being like, yeah, we're into history. Yeah. Remember how in the last I think it was our last what we've been up to episode I talked about you. We were talking about that book that you didn't like and it and the fact that sometimes people will will emphasize not using a slur as the most mm-hmm. important thing you can do. And like, yeah, it is important not to use slurs. I am not advocating that we use slurs on the podcast. Fake Geek Girls. But not using the slur for the travelers is not the problem here, yeah. right? There's there's a lot of problems happening here. So the thing that really struck me during the travelers arc was how worried everybody was about the travelers coming to Mystic Falls, Caroline in particular. And stealing lives. Yeah. Like, I'm sure on some level it was about the plagues, etc., which, yeah, I don't really want the plagues either. But the language specifically used was very, these foreigners are invading my homeland, as if Mystic Falls was inhabited originally by a whole bunch of white people. So bad. Uh, That, coupled with the fact that the travelers are a real group, plus the fact that Mystic Falls continually celebrates the whitewash history, really did not sit right with me. It was bad. It was, like, I just, like, Caroline being like, I don't want the travelers coming and stealing my home. I was like, girl, girl, come on, that rhetoric. It was just bad, like, an absolute lack of, like, um, 
knowledge. Yeah, an absolute lack of knowledge. And I just I just see them being like waiting for someone to ask them about that and be like, did you know? And like doing all this this history research and not really understanding what they're reading. Yeah. Um, so in, in the previous episode, we talked about the protection of a white woman's body from the other, uh, often racialized, often protected by white men. And in this episode, we're going to continue to talk about the protection of a white woman's body and white people's bodies in general, this time by a black woman. Um, so this is a quote from The Dark Fantastic by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, who has an essay in this book about Bonnie specifically. Um, so Thomas writes, as a witch, Bonnie is one of the few non-vampires on the Vampire Diaries. This is significant for theorizing a dark fantastic, for vampires are one of the few malevolent creatures that can be difficult to map onto characters of African descent. In Louise White's Speaking with Vampires, Ruber in History and Cultural, uh, sorry, Colonial Africa, terrified people in colonized Central and East Africa told tales of vampires as analogs of European bloodlust. Quote, the power and uncertainty of these vampire stories. No one knew exactly what Europeans did with African blood, but people were convinced that they took it. Makes them an especially rich historical source, I think. They report the aggressive carelessness of colonial extractions and ascribe potent and intimate meanings to them. The inaccuracies in these stories make them exceptionally reliable historical sources as well. Uh, they offer historians a way to see the world the way the storytellers did, as a world of vulnerability and unreasonable relationships. These stories of blood-sucking firemen or game rangers, pits and injections, allow historians a vision of colonial worlds repellent with all the messy categories and meandering epistemologies many Africans use to describe the extractions and invasions with which they lived, unquote. So... Historically, in colonized countries, specifically colonized countries in Africa, stories of vampires were symbols of European exploitation. And no wonder, right? Uh, Rarely were the colonized people themselves the vampires in these stories because they were about the ways that European colonists were harming them and they were scary, right? They were were telling these scary stories about European vampires coming and taking their blood because that was what was happening. Now, from the show's perspective, the vampires in the Vampire Diaries are largely sympathetic. There are some evil vampires and many of the quote-unquote good vampires do evil things at one point or another, multiple points. But we are meant to like or at least not hate the majority of the vampires, right? Um, But with this tradition of vampire stories in colonial Africa in mind, it is interesting to see the space that Bonnie occupies. She's the only black woman in this mess of exploitative, literally blood-sucking white people and she dies and is used again and again and again and again to fuel whatever is going on in their lives, irrespective of what's going on in hers, which is usually nothing. Um, Bonnie is not literally subservient to the vampires. like She's not anyone's servant in the show, but her main plot elements revolve around her serving the white characters. So... I was watching some interviews with the cast and one of the things it was towards the end of the series they had said was, I think it was the last season, it might have been the season before, they're like, we really worked on not having to rely on Bonnie's magic to save everybody. Um, and so what did they do? They just took her fucking magic away. Uh-huh. Oh, I was so pissed. Yeah. So pissed. Yeah. Like, like there are ways, like, so she literally, it, it just felt like when they killed off the lesbians, like, mm-hmm. oh, she has no use to you anymore, so let's take away, let's take it away. Let's yeah. just take it away. So we don't have to deal with that anymore. Yeah. It'll just get in the way. Uh, Bonnie repeatedly gives up her life for these people, just over and over and over again. Uh, and these are changes from the book. There are changes made to the TV character who, unlike the book character, is black. So while we might want to believe they're just made in service of the story that the show is telling, we cannot disentangle it entirely from the casting and the way that Bonnie's character is treated, which is usually as someone to bolster the stories of the white characters. So to add on to that, 
it has since been deleted, but Julie, but Julie Pleck um, tweeted, uh, I, I pulled it up because I wanted to read it word for word. I believe black women are going to save us all, and I'm so sorry to put that pressure on you, but white women are continually failing all of us. I hope you understand that me seeing you as the hero is not meant to add to your anxiety. Rather, it's to lift you up and celebrate you. Like white women just be better. <laughs> Someone, I am her- a white woman. I will reiterate, I am a white yeah. woman. White women do better. Someone called her out for it and was like, essentially, like this play, this this haunts me because this is shitty. And she responded, she's like, yeah, I deleted it because I'm embarrassed. And and she like, she's like, I'll do better. But the fact that that was in 2020 that she tweeted yeah. that, so the, like it totally matches the way that she uses Bonnie. She yeah. doesn't actually think Bonnie's gonna be a hero. She doesn't actually think black women are going to be the hero because she doesn't write them that way yeah so this is a common this is a common sentiment among white liberal women is that black women are going to save us all and it's like it's not fucking black women's responsibility to fix the problems created by white people like that is not their burden to bear white people do better yeah um it's yeah it's just infuriating and that that is i think that the the worst part is i think that that tweet um shows some kind of growth from the way Bonnie is treated because the Bonnie is just treated as garbage just garbage um she's just she's used in so like talk about assault yeah uh this is another quote from uh the dark fantastic by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas who writes if Elena is an instantiation of white female anxiety about conspicuous consumption and hyper commodification then black female subjects like the vampire diaries as Bonnie Bennett sorry the Vampire Diaries is Bonnie Bennett are possible sites of reconciliation simply because they are not allowed to consume. While Elena's journey from human to vampire allows her to move from the consumed to a consumer, Bonnie remains in the role of the consumed from the first episode until the last. And although she was consumed, the narrative positions this as her own fault due to her disposition and anti-vampire ideologies. Where Elena is uncertain, Bonnie is resolved. Where Elena is ambivalent, Bonnie is assured. And a vampire story that defines morality for its own purposes within the the world any character positioned as a paragon of human morality any character who dares to question the escapist seductive temptation presented by vampirism and who actively works to maintain balance between the natural and the supernatural is presented as the monster anyway so the narrative has very little interest in bonnie as a character unless it is about how she is going to serve the vampires slash elena and until elena is out of the picture and bonnie starts dating enzo like she literally has to be out of the picture. Like she literally can't be there anymore for, yeah. for it to happen. She Bonnie might have moments in the spotlight, but almost all of them are to paint Bonnie as an obstacle in the path of Elena, Stefan and Damon, or as a helper to Elena, Stefan and Damon. Like, can you find me in the show a plot about Bonnie? She, um, there's the, there's her romance with Enzo, her romance with Jeremy. And she, makes all the witches angry because she brings them back okay uh, a lot of it just has still to in the service of a white person yeah a lot of it just has to do with her dying yeah there was another interview that was like what's something like what's the most surprising thing and she was like when they don't kill me yeah i was really surprised bonnie made it all the way to the end yeah um i guess it became like a joke which is like it's one of those things where like haha it's so funny except for the person you're continually killing because you're clearly yeah. trying to get her off the show yeah and what I really liked about the section of the show when Bonnie and Damon were in the prison world was that she finally had a motivation that wasn't about Elena or even Damon. It wasn't about either of them. She wanted to get home to see Elena, of course, but her story wasn't revolving around Elena. She had lots of reasons to want to not be in this uninhabited 
um, prison world. She's going to go travel to yeah, Africa. She, to the country of Africa. Um, Bonnie obviously isn't an antagonist, right? Like she's not constructed that way, but she is continually positioned as an obstacle, sometimes for good, but mostly for irritation, right? And her storylines often revolve around her dying. She feels disposable in a way that most of the other characters do not. As I said, I was surprised that she made it through all eight seasons. I was too. I really thought she died. Yeah. Especially with Enzo being gone. Yeah. Uh, even I was even more surprised that she made it through eight seasons without spontaneously becoming evil. Seriously. But at this like at the same time though, they still had to use Bonnie to create an afterworld where they all could be together. Right. Like without Bonnie, like they couldn't have they I feel like they realized, oh shit, we took her magic away and we took the afterlife away. Yeah. We gotta do something. Yeah. So we won't give her magic back. We'll just kinda be like, she had a spark of a moment. Black women will save the world and we're not going to give them any recognition or time in the spotlight. I'll even save the afterworld. Yeah. Uh, I almost feel like it's worse that Bonnie was always good, but comparatively dull and never evil. Most of the characters were at the very least vampires with their humanity off at some point. And Bonnie never even got there. Like she was always treated as just like pretty good. I think that's part of like part of one of those situations like with the travelers too of like, we didn't do it, therefore we're the good guys. Yeah. And just, I and it just it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that way. Especially since I feel like it would have been so easy for her to turn. The like, construction of Bonnie as as like always pretty good, but sometimes an obstacle feels very like every person who says something racist's black friend. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they were the because like there's a lot of like the devil in the show is black for reasons that are un unexamined. Um most of the black people in the show are evil, with the exception of Bonnie. Um, but and her Grams, yeah, and her Grams, who is dead. Um, Even like her mom and her dad are bad. Yeah, but they can point. They can always. So if somebody accuses the show of racism, they can always point to Bonnie and say, "Well, what about Bonnie? Bonnie was white in the books, don't you know that? Like, so clearly we yeah. we can't be racist." Exactly. Um, So this is another quote from The Dark Fantastic by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, who writes, One point of hesitation on the part of the CW network has been whether to replicate the book's relationship between Damon and Bonnie on the show. That's right. Damon and Bonnie got together in the books. Um, In both the books and the TV show, Damon is obsessed with Elena, who looks exactly like his first love, Catherine. But in the books conceived by the original writer, L.J. Smith, Damon ultimately falls for Bonnie McCullough. In the TV series, this presents a problem. The CW's target audience is young, middle-class white women between the ages of 16 and 34. Perhaps the network felt that its audience wanted to identify either with the female protagonist, Elena, who is caught in a a love triangle between Stefan and Damon. I typed caught in a live triangle. Sorry. They're not alive. (laughs) Or with Elena's quirky blonde sidekick, Caroline Forbes, who has dated or had romantic storylines with several regular and recurring characters, unlike her book counterpart, who is a secondary character. The CW is noted for the love triangles that generate interest for young audiences who then engage in conversations on social media about shipping, a fan term for relationships. The fervor of shippers and other interested fans derives social media buzz, which is a means of marketing shows. So, Uh, Just to add on, this is not a direct quote, but this is things that were said in this uh, essay as well. Ian Somerwilder said that Damon and Bonnie had a great connection, but the network shut any romance between them down. Both, to my understanding, Ian Somerwilder and Kat Graham, who plays Bonnie, really liked the idea of a Damon and Bonnie romance. And when you Uh watch them together in the prison world... They're great. They're great together. I was literally like, 
they're told I I really I'm like they're gonna it's gonna happen they go to Paris like it's gonna happen yeah like like it seems like that's the direction it's going but the network shut it down and there's actually a quote from Julie Pleck one of the showrunners uh why would I want a why would I want quote beautiful strong Bonnie to be with a murderous vampire like Cole now me personally I don't have a horse in the Cole slash Bonnie race because I didn't remember who Cole was and I have to google (laughs) who he was uh but I feel like you couldn't like if you couldn't feel the chemistry between Bonnie and Damon in the prison world, you were watching a different show than I was. I watched an interview where they, it was brought up and she said like, Catherine was like, I, the, I, I wanted this. And the producer was like, why ruin a good thing? That ah. was literally what she said. That was literally <laughs> what she said. Why ruin a good thing? And it was just ridiculous. And you could see it like in the interviews I watched, it was this one YouTube, just all the ways in which she was treated poorly in these interviews. And it was just, you could just see on her face. She was so pissed off. She also said she wanted Bonnie to get with a female witch. Yeah. Which I'm like, give her something. Come on. Yeah. All the things we could have had. All the things she said running (laughs) through my head. Uh, The show was clearly on the Damon Elena train, which whatever. We know my feelings on that because I'm a notorious Elena hater. But what is it about quote unquote beautiful, strong Bonnie that makes her different from Caroline, Mm -hmm. who dates everybody, or Elena, both of whom we can definitely say are beautiful and strong, but they do date murderous vampires. What could be different about Bonnie from the two of them? I just can't put my finger on it. Hmm. There was maybe it's her wigs. Maybe it's the wigs. Uh, there was so much juicy drama potential for a romance between <sighs> Damon and Bonnie, right? Because then he can't let her die. Like he, he, can't, he can't let, let her, her die. die. He can't let her die. It's so good. It's so juicy. It's, it was. It was almost like they set it up, and then they were like, "No," but I don't think they did it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. They like, just had such good chemistry together, and and it's just it just. It was it was so sad. I was I was rooting for Bonnie and Damon together since like literally season one. Yeah, it's like the it's so juicy. It's so juicy. But this isn't just about missed opportunities. We need to ask why Bonnie wasn't allowed to date vampires until the very end. I think there's a mixture of issues here. The show simply does not seem to like Bonnie very much as a character, but they see her as useful because magic is a useful thing to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she has to stick around, right? They cast a black woman to play this character, but they don't want to engage with race. And yet they still treat her differently than every single white woman on the show. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there is unexamined racism happening in the Vampire Diaries, specifically anti-black racism, even if the showrunners were not consciously doing this to Bonnie's character and to Kat Graham, who did not seem to have a good time working on the show. Uh, the results of that unexamined racism are there, even if the showrunners were not like sitting down being like, how can we treat Bonnie like shit because she's black? Um, another quote here from the dark fantastic by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, Bonnie's self-sacrificing use of her magical powers is positioned differently across fan bases. Bonnie fans, especially black women have expressed the view that she has been stripped of agency. Elena fans believe that as her best friend, Bonnie should sacrifice herself. That is the very least she should do. No matter which side the viewer falls upon, it is clear that white Bonnie McCullough's naivety, innocence, and sweetness in the Vampire Diaries novel series transmediated so beautifully on the TV show in scenes like those with the white feathers were ultimately not retained for Black Bonnie Bennett. These character traits were replaced by TV Bonnie's constant self-sacrifice and self-righteousness, traits that are not favorably viewed viewed by characters inside of the story universe or viewers of the series. 
Bonnie's characterization indexes stereotypes of African-American women. Persistent taboos about showing positive interracial relationships on screen are also evident in the televised version of The Vampire Diaries. Instead of being the love interest of the dangerous alpha vampire, as her white book counterpart is, TV Bonnie is a secondary character and an afterthought. Again, it's easy to think that the show is going for a race-blind approach to casting Bonnie, as in they casted the best person for the role regardless of race. This is a common thing that you hear. Oh, we weren't casting for race. We didn't cast this person because they're white. We casted them because they were the best fit. However, in practice, the Bonnie of the show is very different from the Bonnie of the book. The same could be said of Elena, but unlike Elena, Bonnie is consistently shoved to a secondary status even when the book version was not. They are fundamentally two different characters, and unlike Elena, that is not done to make Bonnie a more interesting, exciting, or likable character. Instead, she's primarily an obstacle. So when we talk about the problems with, like, quote-unquote, race-blind casting, it's not choosing the best person for the role. It's choosing... It's the fact that choosing the best person for the role often results in choosing a white person Mm -hmm. and when a white person is not chosen that character suddenly gets rewritten to be completely different Mm -hmm. from the the version that's being adapted and gets sidelined in favor of every white character so missy may be misogynist but at least she's not as racist as a vampire (laughs) (laughs) um another quote here from that essay but it's actually a quote from the tandy thomas uh cat graham the actor who played bonnie said something that stuck with me once she pointed out that she and bonnie are not the same but then said quote and there are people in this world who sometimes do get taken advantage of and they do get the short end of the stick sometimes unquote which was sort of a jolt to hear because i think that while we as fans focus a lot on ideas instead of honest storytelling what cat said still holds true bonnie's character is every black woman who has given and given without getting anything back in return bonnie is our mothers and grandmothers who worked as cleaners or maids for white people bonnie was no more than a modern day slave to the white characters on the show bonnie is realistic but she's just one page in the book of what it means to be a female from the African diaspora. She's not what we want to see anymore. We are more. We've always been more. It's white people who have kept shoehorning us into these roles, unquote. I don't really have much to add to this because I think Thomas says exactly what needs to be said here. Uh, Bonnie's characterization is essentially to be a servant to the white characters, even if she is not literally a servant to them. That is how she is treated. Yeah. And that's how every, like anytime that like, (sighs) Everything, like, with most of the witches being black, except for, like, the... Oh, my God. When all of the witches showed up at the end and they were all black, I was like... So they are literally servants. What the fuck? It's bad. It's really, really bad. Except for the most powerful witch who was white. Of course. It's just, like... It's so bad. There was so much unexamined racism in this show that, like, flew under the radar because it was seen as progressive to cast a character who was white in the books as black and then to treat her horribly throughout the course of the show. In every way. Yeah. It's it just sucks because like Bonnie was so it was so had so much potential and she just got boring. Yeah. You knew what was gonna happen. Yeah, and it's entirely because of the writing. Like the way that Bonnie is written is dull. And the best thing the most interesting she was 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 with Damon. Yep. It's absolutely and it's true. Ridiculous. It's because ridiculous. Cat Graham like did a great job delivering like snarky lines. Mm-hmm. Their back and forth banter was excellent. The fact that they hated each other in the beginning, but so they were stuck good. in this literal prison world together. Excellent. Um, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the show. Yeah. And also I really liked Kai because he was fucked up. So fucked up and evil. The Missy, best. Missy loves a good evil because she's a misogynist. It's true. Um, 
but the show just did not do Cat Graham justice. It did not do Bonnie justice. And that was one of the things that stuck out most to me through the final four seasons was just how shittily they were treating Bonnie. Yeah, it's it's really important. When she lost her when she lost her magic, that was it for me. Yeah. I was just like, you're not even trying to hide yeah. it anymore because you've literally just ripped her of her magic. Yeah. It was and you don't give it back to her. No. Like she has magic in the end, but it's not, but it's more of like an epilogue type. And then there was like, she has magic because they needed a way to get Elena back. Exactly. That was the, that was the motivation. Exactly. She didn't get it back by her own, by you know her own storyline. <laughs> she just worked really hard. She pulled herself just, up by her bootstraps. I practiced really hard and now I can break the spell. <laughs> But I'm not going to show that happening. That would be silly. Um, do you have anything else to say about the Vampire Diaries? You know, I enjoyed watching it. Um, I kind of wish that a lark wasn't in Legacies because I'd be really interested to watch the children because it's mm. um, is that is it about the the babies? It's about well the main the main person it's about is um, Klaus and uh, Hope. No. Haley's daughter. Oh. And then the two girls are in it as well. And Originals is about Klaus, Klaus and, and his family. Re- is Rebecca in it? I, be- I I miss Rebecca. I miss Rebecca too. Um, the only person to ever make Matt interesting. Justice for Rebecca and the lesbian vampires. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's mostly Klaus and his family. I, I think Rebecca might be in it. Cole. And then everybody. Oh, yeah. Cole. That's where Cole is. Um, and... But yeah, it's I guess him and Haley somehow have a child. Okay, um, I don't remember who Haley and is. Haley is the werewolf that Tyler's uh, with. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, and so who was in um that mermaid TV show for teens oh. with Rebecca? Oh, it was her. It was three of them. Is that H two O just add water? I think so. Or was it the other one? The H2O is definitely the New Zealand one. Yeah, it was that one. So she was in it with the girl who plays Rebecca. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I've never watched that show, but that's the one I always see. I, for a while, I always saw like made fun of by this one person on TikTok. Let me see. <laughs> yeah, Cleo is Haley. <laughs> Cleo is Haley. The girl who's Emma is Rebecca. And then the other girl, I don't know what else she's been in. That's so funny. Yeah, they ended up being in a show together. Wow. Um, do you have anything else to say about the Vampire Diaries? No, I'm glad to move on. Yeah, I'm super glad to be done with that. Um, it was not my favorite thing I've ever watched. It wasn't the worst thing I've ever watched, but it wasn't my favorite. I'll say that. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, I'm hungry and I'm going to eat some lunch. Um, you can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes, including our previous Vampire Diaries episode and our Twilight episodes, which if you liked this one, then you'll probably like those too. Um, if if you... Oh, it also has a link to our podcast network, Penwich Studio, yeah. which is home to a bunch of great shows, which you should also check out. That's true. Um, if you like this here. podcast, uh, consider leaving us a review. Your feedback means a lot to us, especially if it's positive. <laughs> but even if it's negative, um, when we get negative feedback, I I sincerely, I, like, I take it seriously. So don't do it. <laughs> no, like, this is like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, no, like, you got something mean to say, don't say it at all. There's, there's one review that I think it made really valid points and it has, it has changed the way that we put the podcast together, whether it makes a meaningful difference for listeners or not. It like, I think it, it made a decent point. Um, so I was thinking about the one that was talking about Kyle. That had to be somebody who knew us. Um, I, 
There's also, I think about one all the time that says I'm too mean to white people. Oh, that was a good one. That one's good. That one's, Mary says that one's that good. That one's good. The one that haunts me because I'm too mean to white people. Yeah, I like that one. Uh, <laughs> that means we're doing it right. Um, but if you leave us a review, like we really do take it seriously. Um, if so it's, don't be mean. If it's positive, that, that positivity means a lot to us. If it's negative. Um, Missy will take it seriously. I take it seriously. And and personally. I, and I'll try to make the podcast better. And she will think about it for a long time and she will always remember it. I will. So don't do it. That's my curse. No, I think it's okay. It's okay to be critical. Obviously, that's the, the whole thing of this podcast. <laughs> it's kind of our ethos you know yeah but not to us but not to us because we're perfect <laughs> except that i'm a misogynist well you know we all have our faults. we all have our faults in minds that i'm a misogynist but you're not as racist as the vampire diaries but i'm not as racist as the vampire diaries so at least there's that um but yeah consider leaving us a review i like it when it's positive <laughs> when it's negative i'm like okay how do i deal with this and the answer is i try to make the podcast better um next time it's time to talk about my man JC. That's right. I'm talking about John Constantine. JC says. JC Chavez. <laughs> We're talking about InSync here, specifically <laughs> JC Chavez's uh, solo career. We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about JC Chavez. What if, like, a modern day John Constantine was in a boy band? Like, that was his hell that he had to be in. <laughs> That's probably an arc somewhere. Um, BTS. We, we are talking about uh, the Hansen. first. <laughs> the first the first trade uh original sins we're gonna be talking about that one uh in the second trade the devil you know there is the explanation of what happened at newcastle which i have instructed mary to read as well um you don't have to read the whole volume just the newcastle arc i think so is, i should read that one before i read the next one it doesn't matter like it really doesn't matter because okay. the prequel okay um, you don't need to know it, but it explains everything that happened at, okay. at Newcastle. Um, and then we will be reading Dangerous Habits, um, which is the first, uh, which is a trade that collects um, Dangerous Habits, the first story by Garth Ennis, which also heavily influenced the movie. Um, and then we are going to be reading the newest run, John Constantine Hellblazer, which is in the trades Marks of Woe and uh, A Better Version of You or The Best Version of You, something like that. Um that will be our next episode. I am fucking jazzed. Uh, after that, we are going to be doing an episode about Constantine, the TV show and Constantine, the movie also fucking jazzed. I cannot wait. This is my little treat for watching 500 hours of the vampire diaries. Uh, after that, I am unsure. It will either be fruits baskets, the fruits basket, the manga, uh, and then fruits basket, the shows, or it will be skins. Uh, the UK we should make it skins so I have more time to read the manga well it depends on how fast I get through skins oh <laughs> we could also slot something else in there because we need to get the mangas yeah so definitely it will be two hellblazer things first and then it'll be either fruits basket or skins or maybe something else um it's hard to say right now because all of these things take time so yeah um that's it for this time yeah. catch on the flip side where Bonnie has made an afterlife We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. And yet here we are, in defiance of Lovecraft, laughing through the darkness. 
The Lovely Craftians is an all-ladies Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast with horror, humor, and no small amount of chaos set in an occasionally familiar modern-day Chicago. Brought to you by Wampus House Productions and the Penwich Studio Network, you can find The Lovelies on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher, or anytime over at lovelycraftians.com. And remember, you never roll sanity alone here.